it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. It's really hard to make sense of how what appeared to be a purportedly straightforward protest about public health restrictions in a city very familiar with protests could turn into a hateful carnival qua occupation. Public order has been upended in the nation's capital. Chief Peter Slowly was forced to resign. The chair of the Ottawa Police Board was removed and three additional police board members resigned. The Emergencies Act has been invoked for the first time in that legislation's history. To help better understand all that has happened since the convoy entered Ottawa on January 28th, I'm joined by Dr. Akwazi Awusu-Bempa, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto and a senior fellow at Massey College. Dr. Awusu-Bempa's work examines the intersections of race, crime, and criminal justice with a particular focus in the area of policing. Race may not be the only lens through which to understand these events, but it's an important one. And while the convoyers may have been moved out, the impact of the Ottawa occupation has already extended well beyond the parliamentary precinct. Thank you for joining me, Akwazi, and welcome to At Risk. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you for having me here today. So right off the top, I wanted to ask you, this whole occupation in Ottawa feels layered and complex, but is race the most important lens through which to understand the events in Ottawa? I'm not sure that race is, in fact, the most important lens. I think inequality would be a huge one and certainly uh, economic inequality. And, and I don't think we can disentangle racial inequality from economic inequality. Uh, race undoubtedly has something to do with what we've seen both in terms of the people who are on the streets uh, protesting, demonstrating the symbolism that they've uh, brought with them and that they've shared. And certainly the narrative with respect to um, the policing aspect of this, obviously one of the few black police chiefs in the country having stepped down over this. I wouldn't go as far as to say that these demonstrators, these protesters, these people who are unhappy with the, the state of the world are simply angry about and trying to push racial issues. But I, I certainly think that it's an important part of the conversation and an important part of uh, the action that they're taking. Well, many people point to the contrast between how these protesters um, have been treated versus uh, if the protesters occupying Ottawa were black or indigenous. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, we've seen, uh, and especially now, um, footage of police officers hugging protesters, footage of police officers allowing protesters to sit in the back of their cruisers almost as if they were you know, at, at show and tell at school or, or at um, an open house at a police station. Um, there have been numerous inst instances in which the protesters, the demonstrators and the police seem to have a, a quite cozy relationship. And this, of course, is very different than what we've seen 
at demonstrations involving Black Lives Matter and, and groups supporting uh, anti-Black racism, various Indigenous protests. Um, and I would include, of course, you know, the removal, for example, of the uh, homeless encampments in Toronto. So very, very different um, styles of policing there. Um, one of my colleagues uh, at the University of Toronto uh, printed a piece last week in the Toronto Star in which she talked about the fact that, you know, the people who were demonstrating and the police in this instance come from, in many ways, the same social groupings, right? Many of the individuals are white, they're quite working class, they would have done the dirty work of the state, uh, worked in factories, uh, you know, the various kinds of jobs that underpin capitalism, many of which no longer exist in North America and other parts of the West. And so we're seeing these tensions now between uh, these individuals in the state that they've supported. So going back to where we started there, yeah, undoubtedly huge difference in the style of policing. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit here about uh, the concept of dehumanization and the violence that we've seen inflicted on black and indigenous people. And again, uh, the removal of the homeless encampments and the black and indigenous people, black and indigenous groups, both dehumanized um, in the process of colonization. You couldn't enslave people without dehumanizing them. Uh, indigenous people, of course, referred to a savage needing to be saved through Christianity. And as part of that process, as groups are dehumanized, we relate to them less or they're related to less and they fall outside of our uh, realm of responsibility. Uh, the infliction of violence on these groups no longer elicits the same kind of emotional and moral response that it does someone that are within our, our realm of responsibility. And so I would say that there's also something quite psychological going on here. The police could see themselves reflected in the protesters. And again, that we saw um, through some of their actions in a way that they couldn't in these other demonstrations. And so I think that's part of the story. Of course, you know, we need to contextualize that uh, given what we've heard and what we know now, what intelligence is telling us about the potential for violence and the, and the groups involved, the uh, weapons that have turned up in, in other parts of the country, not in Ottawa, uh, and the participation or the leadership of, of uh, far-right groups that have, you know, shown and, and exhibited a willingness to use violence in the past. I also think at least, uh, it's not the whole thing, but a part of it is that I think the police were also very concerned that this group really wanted violence. Yeah. Um, and maybe under Chief Slowly's leadership, he was working very hard to not give these occupiers what they wanted. I think that's completely right. You know, Slowly was criticized very heavily right off the bat for failing to act quickly. And I think that he recognized something then that we're increasingly recognizing now. And that's the this demonstration, these protests were not simply about vaccine mandates, they were about something much larger. Um, and the protesters wanted a reason, wanted further justification to delegitimize de the state. And one of the ways in which they could have done that was through the infliction or the use of violence by the state, in this case, of course, the police in those demonstrations. So we know, um, and, and Peter Slowly would know as well as anyone because he was involved in the um, G20 protests that uh, resulted in a lot of scrutiny uh, on the police. That the way in which you police 
a demonstration, the way in which people are placed in any congregate setting influences how they react. And so, um, un, uh, I won't say unplanned, but like poorly coordinated uh, uses of force and shows of force um, and, you know, various other tactics can lead a crowd to respond violently and do so quite quickly. And so absolutely, I think that Peter slowly was cognizant of that. He said that early on, he didn't think necessarily there was a policing solution to this problem. And I believe what he meant by that is there was no simple municipal policing response to what was happening, that there was a need for a well-coordinated intergovernmental um, response to the protests. And that's ultimately what we saw, right? Uh, various levels of government and various uh, policing agencies coming together to coordinate a response to the demonstrations. I think that's right. And yet many are you know, decrying the use of uh, the Emergencies Act and are describing it as an overreach. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how you square that circle. <laughs> yeah, th th this is a, a tough one for me. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm someone that studies to an extent like criminal justice and legal institutions and, and people that enforce laws, but I'm not a lawyer. I advise the Canadian Civil Liberties Association who uh, is challenging uh, the use of the Emergency Act. Um, uh, again, I, I can appreciate concern with uh, its use and the potential long-term ramifications of that. I can also understand why uh, the government might have felt it was necessary to use it. So as you said, it, it, it's kind of hard to, to square that circle and I'm not sure I'm the right person to try to do so. Well, I'm a lawyer, and I'm probably not the right person either, strictly from, from a legal point of view. Um, but it, it, I guess I'm looking at it more um, from, from a practical point of view. Um, and, you know, uh, a positive outcome um, of the litigation uh, will be to understand what role the Emergencies Act played in in either helping or not helping Um to end this occupation. Indeed, you know, the, a, a, an inquiry and investigation into its use is of course built in. And so hopefully in time we, we will see. Um, and I think going back to, you know, uh, several weeks ago now, had intelligence perhaps been more forthcoming um, or had it been better or had it been more appreciated? Because again, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what we're hearing and, and I talked about the work of one of my colleagues earlier. Um, I, I'm thinking about the reporting of Justin Ling, and, and he's uh, released some uh, of the materials that were made available to police. I do think that there was uh, probably a fairly strong understanding, at least among some segments of our um, national security institutions, the, the policing world, uh, people that study those things, and, and people that monitor kind of far-right groups in the country, what was actually taking place, right? So I think some were caught off guard. Um, the citizens of Ottawa were certainly caught off guard. Uh, perhaps uh, the Ottawa police is an entire institution, if not the leadership was, was caught off guard, perhaps the government was caught off guard here in, in terms of what was actually going to happen. Um, and perhaps if that intelligence, that information, intelligence is really just useful information, right? If that intelligence had been uh, either better or more widely shared or more widely appreciated, then we wouldn't have ended up where we ended up. Perhaps the, the, the opposite is true, right? Again, perhaps 
there was acknowledgement of the elements, the groups, the individuals uh, who were involved in this action, who had tried to plan similar unrest before, although perhaps not with the transport trucks. Um, maybe there were some that thought it needed to come to this in order for us to wake up to you know what is actually happening in this country at the moment. Uh, of course, you know we can look south of the border, January sixth. Uh, insurrection on Capitol Hill in the United States, and, and many people saying, oh, well, this would never happen here. And there were many others that were saying, of course, this could happen here, right? And, and so uh, this has certainly awoken many Canadians, certainly I won't make any jokes about people in Ottawa being awake, but awoken many Canadians to you know the realities of the cultural wars and the dispute over values, norms, and, and, and political views that exist in this country. So Chief slowly resigned. It's, uh, I guess, on the one hand, it, it, it's understandable. Maybe, maybe a little bit, uh, like the captain going down uh, with his ship, so to speak. Um, but I think there is another aspect to his resignation that really reflects um, reflects a poor understanding of the complexity of, of, of what he was dealing with, not just the, the complexity of the threat, but the complexity of being um, a black police chief and dealing with this particular protest. Um, what's, what's your perspective on, on uh, Chief Slowly's resignation? Yeah, I, I don't think it was the right outcome for the sequence of events. And I think that he's a very unfortunate casualty here. I think ultimately, you know, on reflection, he resigned because he'd lost the trust and confidence of uh, the citizens of Ottawa. You know, there were he was under a huge amount of scrutiny from the public and and from um, you know other quarters too, political uh, and, and otherwise. So, policing needs trust and confidence in order to happen. Right, the institution of policing rests on le the legitimacy of the public, and if that legitimacy is not there, and the legitimacy comes through trust and confidence in large part, then the police can't do their jobs, and and, and that was clearly gone. Why had he lost that trust and legitimacy, though? That's where things become much more complex. So again, I, I think that he should have had and received much greater support from government from whether that be the city of Ottawa, the government of Ontario, and the government of Canada initially. And I think it should have been made public just how the various levels of government were working together to coordinate a response to the, the protests. I think that may have, I don't want to say satisfied the public, but changed the public's view. Um, you know, making uh, the public aware of the recognition that the way in which they respond is going to influence the response of the protesters and increase the potential likelihood for violence would have been quite useful. I think we also need to look at who slowly was and the institution that he had been appointed to lead. So uh, Peter slowly had uh, risen up through the ranks in the Toronto police service quite quickly um, uh, under actually uh, minister Blair. He has an MBA. He served in UN peacekeeping missions, um, credentials from the FBI Academy. Uh, and he was looked at as uh, by many as the natural successor to Blair uh, as chief of the Toronto police. He was also seen as very progressive in terms of his views around social and racial justice, as well as in terms of the modernization of policing. 
So he was brought into Ottawa uh, in part to try and deal with issues related to anti-Black and other forms of racism. And his profile, his background, his outlook made him in Ottawa a dual outsider. He was an outsider because he hadn't come up through Ottawa in terms of his career. And oftentimes we will see chiefs appointed, appointed from within. They know the service, they know the members, they know the culture, et cetera, and that can make their jobs easier. But he was also an outsider in terms of those views. And those views, especially around kind of the social justice, the racial justice aspect, but also the modernization piece, conflict with the dominant police culture. Um, and so that made his job very difficult. And, and he'd already faced a lot of criticism from the um, police association leader in Ottawa, asking him to resign long before the protests, right? That's my understanding as well, that he'd had a bit of a difficult time with the rank and file. And so he may have also you know, been dealing with a level of insubordination here. And so there was so much going on. You've got this black progressive chief who doesn't necessarily have the best relationship with the police force that he's been appointed to lead. Uh, some of those police officers may have had sympathies again with the, the protesters. And so he's perhaps not getting the most cooperation internally. He's perhaps not getting the best cooperation externally. And you can see how his job becomes extremely, extremely difficult to do. And so I do think, you know, who knows how long his tenure at the, at the helm of the Ottawa Police Service uh, may have lasted uh, otherwise anyway. Uh, again, uh, I can recognize that there were some challenges there, uh, but this was certainly the nail in, in, in that coffin. And it's unfortunate from my perspective. He's, uh, I've worked with him. He's a very intelligent person. Um, I think he was a very good police leader. He had a lot of potential uh, and I think it's unfortunate one that he you know wasn't able to take the reins in toronto and, and two uh, that he wasn't able to be successful in doing so in ottawa picking up your point on the difference between a police chief who's been promoted from within the ranks versus hiring someone from the outside the the saga didn't really end with uh chief slowly's resignation either the police board chair um was essentially removed by council uh, due to a falling out over the appointment of an interim police chief who was again going to come from the outside uh, and displace an interim police chief who came from within uh, the Ottawa ranks. Um, Just from a governance perspective, I was a little bit surprised by that. Uh, Once again, I'm not an expert in in police governance, um, but... I expected that that there would be a certain amount of autonomy um, enjoyed by the police board in terms of, of selecting uh, the chief. And, and I wouldn't have expected a mayor and council to be as involved post-decision uh, on who the chief is. Can, can you shed any light for me on, on, on what happened there or, or just in generally how police boards are supposed to work? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say I think... Um, Perhaps one of the most infi- insightful things I can say is just to that this lament just how political policing is. You know, the word police actually comes from like policy, like the, it's like politics is literally built into the word policing. And uh, it raises questions most certainly about uh, the institutions that we have in in this country to govern and oversee the police. So I, I, I won't get into the details again, because I, I, 
have not been in those rooms and privy to a lot of perhaps what was happening or taking place behind the scenes. Um, police service boards are uh, appointed. Uh, members of police service boards are appointed and they come from different constituent groups and there are different entities that appoint different members to uh, police uh, service boards. And of course, as you've noted, you know, their ultimate goal is uh, governance, but it is so very highly political. And my sense is that the, I don't want to call them necessarily mishaps, but the mayhem that we saw that resignation and, and the contestation, the frustration was part and parcel or reflective of the, the, the political pressures and, and, in some ways, the political disaster that the protests themselves had become. How's that for answering your question without actually answering your question? <laughs> no, it's pretty good because I have to be honest. I think I think you're you're totally right. I think to a certain extent, there's probably like subtle questions um, with with nuanced answers within that set of facts. But I think it's really just a situation of mayhem, where uh, counselors wanted to seem accountable. Um, they were just unhappy with either the level of consultation or just in the general direction of the police services board, owing to how poorly um, the situation was was degrading. And, and they just were like, you know, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> that was that, you know, uh, the 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 uh, the gentle nuances of governance uh, aside. I also wanted to um, uh, ask you a little bit about the history of policing, and if there was anything related to the history of policing that could help us also better understand um, what, what has happened in Ottawa. There are lots of hot takes on, you know, what's happening. There's lots of symbolism, uh, in terms of seeing, um, trucks, uh, and upside down Canadian flags being waved in, in our parliamentary precinct. Um, and that's, that's a fact, but it also triggers an emotional reaction. I really struggle to, try and get a handle on the significance of what I'm seeing. And I'm just wondering if there's, you know, any history that that that, that can maybe also kind of help us, you know, tease out what, what what has happened here. When we look at the emergence of the police in the Western world, certainly, you know, our, our model of policing in, in Canada uh, can be seen being born in the United Kingdom. Uh, Sir Robert Peel's uh, Bobby's in, in London and, and also in, in Ireland, Royal Irish Constabulary. But the, the London uh, Metropolitan Police uh, developed, uh, established initially to deal with you know, various forms of social unrest in London, but most certainly to deal with uh, labor disputes. And so early policing um, as a capitalist enterprise was established to deal with and uh, to protect the interests of the capitalist class from uh, the workers. What I think we've seen over time as countries like the United Kingdom, Canada um, have changed in terms of their demographic is a closer alignment between the police and those laborers, right? So that, that, that working class um, and the police protection of uh, their interests at the expense of some of the groups that we've talked about before. So, 
So certain racialized populations, indigenous populations, and others that have challenged um, capitalism. So again, the G20 protests, right? And so what we'd seen historically, um, at least in you know recent decades past, even the last hundred years in, in Canada and in the United Kingdom, is the police, not always, of course, but often um, their interests, their actions being much more aligned with that white working class. And, and again, here I'm, I'm thinking about who many of the uh, people in the protests and the demonstrations in Ottawa would have been. And uh, more of a difference uh, and, and more of a, a, a control and enforcement orientation taken towards those other groups. And I think, you know, what's so interesting and again, um, challenging for many people to see here is the response that the police took to the protesters and, and going back to our conversation around this kind of cozy relationship, the lack of extreme force or even force being used in the way that it was. I was watching footage, um, re-watching footage from the summer from the clearing of the homeless encampments in, in Toronto and watching people who had formed the, the uh, human uh, chains just being so, you know, violently, but and this is just one example, and these are white individuals largely that I, I was looking at, you know, this say nothing about how Indigenous protests, of course, uh, Indigenous occupations, of course, in this country uh, have been dealt with in the violence, the approval of uh, lethal force up until, you know, even the last several years uh, for police to uh, deal with uh, these demonstrations, these occupations, these protests. And so I, I think, um, we're seeing, and I'll, I'll go back to the article that I was mentioning, it's Judith Taylor's uh, piece in the Toronto Star about the compact between uh, the state and, and, and the white working class having broken down here and uh, seeing the anger and frustration of the white working class on display in Ottawa and how the police have had to try and deal with and navigate um, any similarities that they may have, uh, any kind of affinity that they may have to uh, these protesters. Um, in the context of calls, of course, and a need to uh, deal with what we'd seen on the streets of Ottawa. So when we think about how history is influencing the present, I also can't help but, you know, I guess, remark or, or, or see that the protesters keep pointing to their uh, purported peacefulness as a reason uh, to why they should be able to continue to occupy the parliamentary precinct. Um, and perhaps I'm reading too much into this, but but I sort of feel like, like they're they're trying to borrow from from the concept of civil disobedience as a as a as a justification for for why there should be no intrusion into their occupation until they're ready to leave. What is wrong with this group? drawing upon the concept of civil disobedience based on what what we've seen so far uh, in the convoy? Well, so I think you started off talking about, and, and again, this language around peaceful protest. And um, I think if you're living anywhere close to where these protests were taking place, you'd suggest that they were anything but peaceful, uh, just from the immense amount of noise, of course, and sound that was emanating from them. Um, when I think of peaceful, I think of things that are quiet, tranquil, and the protests certainly were not. Um, and, and similarly, um, 
I'd see on Twitter as I was scrolling through, I'd hear people commenting, I'd listen to people talking on the radio. And, and that statement again about uh, things being peaceful, some of the symbolism that we saw uh, early on, the um, swastikas, the uh, Confederate flags, nothing about that symbolism is peaceful. Uh, nothing about that symbolism is nonviolent, right? In fact, it's the exact opposite. It is extremely violent, um, certainly for someone like myself uh, and for many other uh, Canadians and people around the world. So I think there's a certain level of, of violence and, and the antithesis of, of peacefulness built into that. When I think about civil disobedience, and I, I'm someone who believes that civil disobedience is, is necessary at times, I think about it being necessary uh, in the face of uh, just laws and practices, right? Um, and we've seen, and I believe that civil disobedience has led to positive outcomes at times uh, over the course of history. I guess I'd have to put myself in the shoes of the people that were protesting, and, and they may genuinely, I'm sure they do genuinely believe that, you know, if they are engaging in peaceful or peaceful protest or civil disobedience. Uh, they're doing so because they genuinely believe that whether it be the vaccine mandates or other policies of our government are wrong. Now, I, I don't share their view, um, but I, I will put myself in their shoes. And again, I think, you know, let's perhaps even take a step back and understand and think about why folks are in the streets protesting, why people are as angry as they are. It's because we've got some very serious problems in our society that are affecting people in, in very serious ways, right? So when we look at the impacts of neoliberal policies, when we look at the impacts of globalization, when we look at the impacts of increased economic inequality, right? We see when we look at a certain sub-segments of the North American population, especially for white men, not only kind of decreases in earning potential, but also in life expectancy as well, right? And so I think people have a genuine reason to be unhappy. Um, it would be the same reasons that other groups have been unhappy because, you know, the, again, promise of capitalism um, is not one that's, that's come true. And especially in light of the conditions in which many people have had to live over the past two years with uh, precarious employment for some, um, social isolation, uh, contributing to mental health problems, of course. You know, we've, we've just gone through a very unusual time for many people, one that has been quite traumatic for many people. So when we layer on, right, social isolation, uh, what can be perceived as increasing enco encroachment from government into the lives of everyday individuals, economic uncertainty, and all these other things, again, I can understand why people are angry especially when they see you know, the richest people in the world's net worth having increased by what it has. People like Bezos and Musk and Branson having a space race, like a bunch of little boys who want to see whose go-karts faster, right? Like, why wouldn't that piss you off? Pardon my language. But why would that not anger or frustrate you, right? So um, I, I think that, again, this the idea... Um, that they're engaging in civil disobedience to them may seem completely appropriate, even if it doesn't to others. I, I struggle with this. I have to be honest. So I'm, I agree with you. I try to lead with empathy. 
Um, I note that, you know, being social, having human contact with others and, and not just, you know, a small bubble of people is, is a determinant of health and whole health, you know, our physical health and um, our, our mental health. Where I start to get challenged, though, is I don't think we're living in a tyranny of the majority, right, through vaccine mandates. You know, democracies are built on the assumption that we will not agree with everything. And we agree to accede to our representatives to to make these kinds of decisions. We also equally protect the right to disagree. Um, but I just feel like there's just there, there, there's a there, there's a disproportionate uh, response when, when when it comes to occupying the the parliamentary precinct and actually stopping um, members from from meeting. And, and then when we look at other parts of the country, of course, you know the uh, bridge closures, um, serious economic impacts, right? for uh, our economy. Um, and so I, I, I didn't say at all that I agreed with what they were doing. I, I certainly can understand why um, this is being done. And, and it goes back to that uh, idea that um, in many ways, the people engaged in these actions uh, have been sold a bill of goods right, in terms of the type of life that, that they should have. And there's, they have a serious level of anger and frustration, and it's one that's stoked by people perhaps with more nefarious interests and the fact that we live in this increasingly connected, although polarized uh, age in which these views can be shared so quickly um, across jurisdictions. And so um, I, I would, you know, I completely agree with... Um, your assessment in terms of this not being something necessarily that is right, uh, not being something that should have taken place. And I think it, it should act as a wake-up call, right, for our politicians or those who weren't paying attention already and, and our society, a society, uh, to understand uh, those frustrations. And again, I agree with the fact that in a democracy, there are going to be people who are unhappy with the state of affairs and we have to live with those. We have avenues to vent our frustrations, right? You know, again, actual peaceful protest is protected and I think it, it, it should be encouraged, right? Like this is how we have healthy debate in a democracy. Um, I don't, I certainly wouldn't want to characterize my statements as justifying what's being done but certainly clarify, enlighten, whatever it might be, why the folks have taken the actions that they've taken. And I think the important thing, going back to kind of the piece around race, is that they feel justified and they're emboldened to do so because for so long they haven't had to deal with the inequality, the subjugation of the state that many others have, right? So like this is, you could suggest or argue that for the group as a whole, it's, you know, I don't wanna say having a tantrum because they've never been told off before, but they 
haven't to the extent that they have now perhaps had to live with the realities of their current conditions. And that's why they're acting in the way that they are. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think more and more um, messaging and advertising and political communications are more targeted to those kinds of uh, emotional responses. Like more often than not, we're trying to tap into uh, our emotions. And, and I guess we can't be surprised when sometimes those emotions erupt in ways that, 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 that we don't like. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, right. And then when you think about that, like I'll go back to social media, like you post something on Twitter, and, and then you get a dopamine hit from all of the likes that you get, which may lead you to, you know, post more kind of extremist views, support more extremist views to quite literally, like get this dopamine hit, right? Um, but that, like that piece aside as well, like it, it troubles me when I see you know, politicians kind of stoking these sentiments as well. And we saw that very clearly, right? Um, various members of the Conservative Party especially initially coming out in support of, but then continuing to, to stoke the resentment even later on um, as the, the protest, the, the occupation, the convoy um, sat tight in Ottawa. And so that, that part, I think, is, you know, again, something that we, we need to really consider. We live in an increasingly politically polarized world. Um, and what responsibility do our politicians have to actually ensure the the well-being um, and the future well-being of the countries that they purport to serve. And to what extent can we see politicians engaging in stoking such resentment for their own political ends as opposed to trying to do what's best for our country? Now, one could argue how many politicians go into politics to do what's best for our country versus do what's best for themselves. Uh, but, you know, as, as someone who's not in politics myself and who would hope that many folks would actually go into politics to do what's best for our country, I think they should take a long, long hard look in the mirror. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, my personal experience in this and this isn't just, you know, people who wear red. Uh, there, there's a lot of people blue, a lot of people wear orange, <laughs> a lot of people who wear green, who definitely uh, get into politics for, for the right reasons. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about um, Prime Minister Trudeau is that a lot of people are, are, you know, pointing to the fact that vaccine mandates uh, became a part of and, you know, and in some instances were, were, were used to, to, you know, justify the reason for, for an election call. I, I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I think it's not. But maybe I'm just horribly biased. But what I will say is, is that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, has been a lightning rod for some people, including Stephen Harper, for the record, uh, in a way that, you know, he doesn't even have to say anything and he and and his mere existence his his appearance is just it just triggers such such a a, a strong response that that I, I don't even understand it most of the time like it's it's very strange to me well i think when you think about his existence in the context of concerns around a liberal 
Lalit, right? Like this is someone who is so often painted as a drama teacher who was elected prime minister riding on the coattails of his father as opposed to anything that he may have done otherwise or could potentially do for our country, right? And so I think it becomes quite easy to demonize him. Uh, and I think about someone who is um, liberal and I, I hear often as well, you know, conversation about academic elites and these people in ivory towers. And so it beca he becomes a very easy scapegoat, right? Someone who could be, you know, viewed as not having worked for um, what he's achieved, but rather been handed it, uh, especially again, when you look at some of the people who are engaged in the types of, of protests and, and, and hold the views that we do, people who would consider themselves oftentimes to be very hardworking. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you, so uh, obviously events are still unfolding. Um, uh, and there's, I, you know, I think more, more plans for, for further actions at our borders and elsewhere. But everything that that's transpired so far, what do you feel the impacts to the future of protest in Canada might be? Well, my hopes would be, given the restraint that the police were able to demonstrate here, that the next time there are people who do not look so much like the police demonstrating or protesting, that they're met with a similar level of restraint by the police. Now, that may be wishful thinking, but I hope not. I hope this teaches us a lesson about or teaches those in power and those in the law enforcement community um, a lesson about the importance of, of having good intelligence uh, and using that wisely and, and properly understanding the nature and the potential ramifications of unrest. Uh, again, we, we, we've seen over and over again the infiltration of law enforcement and uh, intelligence types in Indigenous organizations and, and, and around Indigenous protests, the same with uh, Black protests, and these go back like quite literally decades. And, and I have no doubt that there's similar infiltration, infiltration here, perhaps. Um, it sounds like there, there has been uh, because those intelligence briefings to accept were forthcoming. Um, but I would, I would hope that we would think about what, you know, the actual potential for danger, the actual consequences of protests of uh, unrest maybe, and try and deal with and manage them in a way that aligns with the rights that we have under the charter, of course, and, and what we want people to be able to do in what I hope to be a healthy democracy like Canada's. So we've discussed this already, and, and I believe it to be true, like people must have the right to protest in a democracy. It's absolutely necessary. Uh, one, in order to help share diverse viewpoints and views, I think they can serve as a release valve as well uh, for anger and for hostility and, and, and hopefully as well that they can prompt change, right? So I think that they are important and that they're necessary. Um, I think that they should be to the extent that they need to be managed appropriately by government and by law enforcement. And I think that's important. And I think there ought to be, as someone who studies inequality in our society, a more equal enforcement and management where necessary of protest. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. 
Thank you so much for sharing all of your insightful comments. And I share your hopes that that some good can come from these events, in particular for the people who lived in Centertown in Ottawa. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me out here.